Zesty provides an autonomous cloud experience by leveraging advanced AI technology to manage the cloud for you. Their AI reacts in real time to capacity changes and enables companies to maximize cloud efficiency and reduce their AWS bill by more than 50% completely hands-free. Cloud on autopilot. With Zesty, companies can spend less and do more. Check them out at zesty.co. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Our topic today, complex multi-cloud networking. So this is this is a topic we've hit before on Day 2 Cloud. Yes, cloud networking is hard. It's so hard. And but genuinely what we get into in this show is when you're in several different cloud environments and you were constrained by what is happening with the cloud native networking, but need to stitch all those environments together because of your application fabric, what does that look like and how do you architect that? And so we start off with the problems and then talk about an API gateway as a connectivity problem that needs to be solved. And our guest is, uh, is Chris Oliver. Ned, what, what stood out to you in this conversation we had with Chris? These are the kind of episodes that I really love because we're not just talking at a pure theoretical level. We're not talking to someone from a vendor. We're talking to someone who's living this day to day and getting into some of the details of the implementation, actually seeing where things are broken and don't work and then what they had to do to work around it. So that was what stood out to me is just the the honesty and the clarity of the conversation. Honesty and clarity. Yeah. And to some degree, the brutality of what Chris has had to (laughs) deal with as a network architect designing for a very complex solution for an API gateway he needed to deliver for his company. And I, please enjoy this conversation with Chris Oliver. Well, Chris Oliver, welcome to the Day 2 Cloud Podcast. And uh, hey, I know you've been on the Packet Pushes Podcast Network before, but if you would, would you introduce yourself to just a sentence or two so people know who you are? I'm Chris Oliver. I work for NI. Um, I'm a uh, network architect and uh, glad to be back on the show. All right, man. Thank you very much. And uh, this, the topic of this episode, why I wanted to get into this with you, you live in this world of complex multi-cloud networking. That is from some of the stories I've heard from you. You're in several different clouds. You have on-prem stuff. You've got it all connected. There are different projects that need to communicate with each other, depending on what environment they're in, in different ways. And it's like, okay, Chris is living that. I was going to say misery. Maybe that's too strong of a word, Chris, but (laughs) living the the pain of networking complexity and multi-cloud, like we talk about, um, so well, let's talk about, first of all, set it up for us. Uh, why in your experience, Chris, why is multi-cloud networking so complex? Cause I could argue, I mean, it's just networking, isn't it? <laughs> it is just networking. I mean, all the protocols are the same. Nothing's lost in that side, that portion of it, but, um, translating their, well, <clears throat> just translating how they, how they go about doing things makes it very difficult. And, you know, if, I would say from the, from the IT department, we probably wouldn't have liked to have really been in all the clouds we are, but uh, business drags you around, so you get to figure it out. <laughs> Projects start up before you know it; they're in a they're, they found a, a feature they want in one cloud or another, and they they're off down that track. You get to figure out how to then connect it, continue on. Right. So you said translation, and in that me in that way, you mean that the, the actual protocols down at the at the lower levels are the same, but the way that they name it, or maybe the way they go about implementing it, changes depending on the cloud. Absolutely, they're 
everyone has their unique aiming to it. Uh, they've they've created their totally different interfaces to it, and maybe the path you would the way you go about implementing the, the different pieces together. You've got to figure out what's different about each cloud and, and work that. I mean, all each cloud is um, they're very particular, right? They've they've defined their environment exactly the way they want it, and you. you if you go against the grain, you really put yourself in a lot of pain. So. <laughs> well, I mean, is this a terminology problem mostly? I mean, because if, if I'm an on-prem network engineer and I know switching and routing pretty well, can't I just go to whichever the cloud is? And once I kind of figure out their nomenclature, can I just make a few assumptions and go? Or is it harder than that? Um, no, you once you're kind of got into it, I guess you're not like completely having to start over each time you move, but you definitely... I have to figure out the new interface, figure out the new API calls, figure out how to set up your consoles to do your scripting or anything else. I mean, it's there's a whole lot of layers in there that just just to get started you know, create a big hurdle for you to to get get to, to begin the process. And then, like I said, they're they're so prescriptive about how they want things done. You know, each one of them may have a slightly different idea. So you you know, translate what what you did one time won't won't necessarily directly work in the in additional clouds that you enter and again so it's not so it's not just a naming thing in other words there's i'm going to probably make some bad assumptions if i'm an on-prem engineer is what i'm hearing you say does that sound right yeah i mean like let's take like azure um, so azure and if you have your express route connectivity or anything there's a virtual router under that drives the the azure express route connection so the, the last mile connection there uh, in the cloud, it's all IPsec and, and stuff is you set up a bunch of IPsec sessions between different DNets and traffic can flow through there. They don't really ever call it out, but that when you, when you pick your express connect size, so you pick a gig or 500 meg or something like that, that virtual instance that's sitting there was sized automatically on the backside to do that work. But that gateway also can do east-west, hmm. but you didn't hmm. actually pick those things. You didn't decide the, that that's what you what you you didn't plan performance-wise for that to work that way. But then you you wind up down the road finding out you have a performance issue, and it's because you've got a 500 meg or a gig instance a, a instance running there that's capable of 500 meg or a gig of traffic. You've got five or 600 meg of traffic coming on-prem, and then a bunch of east-west stuff going on. Those things, they're not spelled out that that's the way that that sizing works or any way of controlling that. It's just something you step into mm. uh, that doesn't have that same for scenario in, in AWS, say. You don't know you're going to get into that same problem. <laughs> so just I'm curious if we drill into this sizing thing. Okay, so let's say I'm limited to 500 megabits per second. How are they doing that? Uh, is it a shaper or a policer? Uh, how how uh, nasty is it? Yeah, it's it's more that it's just the uh, the uh, instance size machine that it's running on. How many virtual CPUs and stuff that are associated with it? And uh, so yeah, it's not a it's not it's not something you can just go adjust. Like you, mm. you even though you're paying, you, you maybe you only need a gig connection for your on-prem connectivity, but you need to actually have sized it at a gig and a half or something because you have some east-west you need to take care of. Fortunately, you, you can size it up. Is it, uh, there's no penalty. I mean, just pay more for it. No big deal. But, to, but then you want to take it, make it smaller, <laughs> make it smaller. 
you have to destroy the whole thing and start over. Yeah. Oh, the whole direct connect. There you yes. go. That's the penalty. It's like, oh, yep. we don't mind if you pay us more. Oh, you want right. to pay less? Oh, oh <laughs> I, you silly person. <laughs> yes. I have that problem with my VPSs as well. I can size them up. They'll, they're happy to do that for me as soon as I want to size them back down. No, sir. No, sir. Keep yeah. <laughs> destroying and rebuild. Yep. Destroy and reset and, and uh, start back over and figure out why. Why was I having a performance from in the first place? That, yeah. Those kind of things that, that, you know, every time you step into a new cloud, you, you got to figure out little oddities like that. <clears throat> okay. And you said that was a specific to Express Route and, and Microsoft. You said you didn't observe the same issue if you're using Direct Connect through AWS. And is that just a difference in the way that they implement the connection on their side? So then they've, you know, they're, like I said, they're, they're very opinionated on how things work. Uh, they don't have transitive routing in AWS. So you... <laughs> You have VPC to to direct connect. Those are individual paths, so you don't run into the same problem. You're only you can only drive the. You got a one gig direct connect, then it sizes itself to support one gig, and <laughs> you you're not going to exceed that because you're just going north south. So it just okay. changes things in there. So it's it you kind of get into you, know, you you to do transitive. You wind up spinning up uh, a CSR or, or mm. an Aviatrix box, or are you go in down their transit gateway path and you do those pieces and that's those are totally different they don't necessarily have you don't even size the transit gateway per se it's right. a different problem right <laughs> <laughs> it's going to do east west unless you've uh, configured a bunch of policies to to split up the route tables and so isolate everything per environment you end up having to do a whiteboard diagram that shows every module that traffic is going to be transiting through whatever the the cloud object is or the virtual uh, network function is and then understand what the limits are along the way and as you're pointing mm -hmm. out here it's it's not all the same per environment so this I, uh, it's starting to get clear to me here where the multi-cloud networking complexity comes in um can i just say chris that uh this sucks man it doesn't sound like any fun at all oh <laughs> well, it was it was definitely an interesting first couple of years when we first got into it and you know, just getting your head into the cloud networking and then then all then all of a sudden it's oh no no no, no. we're going to move that over to move it from azure to aws because one of the vendors it's overall an overall stack wants to uh, stop supporting azure so you know then you bail off and go well i'm going to figure this out in another cloud get it back online of a full production environment has to then come live very quickly not a it wasn't it wasn't the long dev time and stuff that was spent on build, developing an empire product the first time around right just bail off get it done be finished in a week or two and <laughs> ready for production again <laughs> i think you made an important point there is you're running a third-party piece of software and you have to stay under their support contract and if they say hey you know we're, we used to support azure and aws but you know what we're just going all aws now they're de facto forcing you into a multi-cloud scenario that maybe you didn't even want to be in exactly That's yeah, that's an important, someone should put that on the risk register when you're <laughs> incorporating some COTS components is if we want to stay under support, we have to follow where their support goes. Exactly. Yeah, definitely. When you bring the third party into it, there's another layer. So if business wants to drag you between different clouds and then the, <laughs> the features that they're the third party that they may have selected may drive you into a, another cloud. So I don't think many would say they plan to be in multiple clouds. I think it starts out as a, it's a single cloud and then something happens and you wind up in a multi in additional cloud and then you get all the extra headache 
and I'm not even, I mean, I'm speaking from a network perspective only. So there's a ton of other stuff when you think of administering and everything else in each cloud. So mm-hmm. just in the, just in the network scope. <laughs> what? Okay. If I do network design, Chris, one of the things I like to do is uh, think about redundancy and resiliency. So redundant switches and routers for these mission critical things. Uh, first hop redundancy protocol is a pretty common thing dual paths where I can, and obviously those kind of things are budget constrained and so on. But the, the point is, I think a lot about having that resiliency so that if one thing breaks, the network keeps going. <laughs> can I bring that thinking to cloud? How, how does that work? Uh, it's more than bringing. They, they actually, their patterns that they use force most of the time, almost entirely force you into having redundant equipment in there. So you don't really create, you don't, you know, it's, say you have a VPC and you're creating an IPsec session back to an on-prem. It's not like you're creating two primary and a backup. It forces you into, and it actually creates four tunnels to do it. So they create two DGWs or two, whatever you want to consider it that terminates the IPsec sessions. There, there are two of them running there. And then you wind up with four tunnels on your end that you have to distribute across your redundant equipment. So that's, that's forced. Direct Connect is forced. You wind up with redundant stuff inside there. Well, maybe Direct Connect. Maybe it's not as forced, but it is um, highly recommended that you have two paths <laughs> and you will continue to get an alert from the system from AWS, say, every day that you don't have two paths. So you don't have to do it, but you're going to be annoyed by not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, all your redundancy, you still think along those lines, but you have to flip things around and sometimes on it. Think about it as, I mean, their availability zones and yep. they're, they're, if you're not using native uh, cloud uh, networking components, then you do wind up having to create two instances, two EC2 instances, different availability zones, and then figure out what happens with the subnet routing tables and stuff, making sure that that traffic is preferred locally and doesn't jump to another AZ. So you get to pay for it just because you're trying to get to a gateway. And there's, there's lots of little things you got to be careful with that you find out later in billing or something that <laughs> something you didn't think about. Mm-hmm. There's the, the placement of the NAT gateway can be uh, really uh, decisive on how much you pay in, in cross AZ <laughs> traffic costs. Whoops. Everything's transiting over to a different subnet to get out. Nah, whoopsie yep. on that one. Yeah. So uh, definitely things like that you have to be careful with. And maybe you don't, you won't, you don't see it very often fully documented out. I mean, I guess people's articles and stuff, like you said, and the rabbit hole you can go down trying to figure out how to implement something. <laughs> right. You did mention briefly using third party instead of cloud native uh, functions or uh, appliances. If I is there a trade off to using um, something like a virtual network function appliance as opposed to using the native functions in a given cloud? Uh, and are there some benefits to doing that over using the native solution? So we took down, we took off down the path of trying to, to when we first moved to the cloud, we're going to learn all the native pieces and, and figure out all the pe- all the tools we need to use and, and build everything that way. Because that's um, the right way, right, Chris? Well, I mean, right? Cloud native. Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, even, even more subtle than that. I just want to make sure that, that if we're billing into the cloud and you're paying by the minute for everything, that you're doing things as efficiently as possible. And you would mm-hmm. think they're, their mechanisms are, are going to lead you down that path. So 
you know, I took that, took that stance when we first dug into it. And, uh, after a year or so, it was like, yeah, well, there's lots of little gaps in the cloud native tools. So what, what do the third parties bring to the table? And, uh, that's where we quickly became, um, you know, you look at the Cisco offerings and stuff or the firewall offerings, you can use those as some kind of edge routing function in a VPC to the, for traffic between VPCs or traffic back to, to on-prem. So you use the old Cisco CSR or something and they have pretty nice semi-automated architectures that allow, allow you to attach VPCs to a, to a hub that, a hub VPC that contains a couple CSR routers, or you could do this for firewalls. You could do the same kind of stuff. The traditional vendors, it's those are very. They're still very much artisanally configuring those piece each piece of that. <laughs> you know, then you can move into third party tool, other third party tools that were built for the cloud, and they definitely follow the more SD WAN type controller based single place to make your configs. Tons of stuff already automated into them, so, so it makes it artisanally quick, a quick can... jump artisanally yep. as in one at a time you're hitting devices and configuring yes. even if there's some automation there versus a controller policy pushes it down into everything that's under its care and feeding absolutely yeah yeah they kind of they take your traditional cli and they wrapped a few little things around them to to help a little bit but you still had the vast majority of your configs would still be a traditional artisanal config but again the driver for these going to a something that's not cloud native you 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 said it kindly in one passing statement we found some gaps <laughs> meaning yes. what there's just you know some functionality that's not there that you found you really needed so the cloud native tools are well let's let's say let's, so cloud native tools from aws are still they use bgp in your on-prem to cloud exchange but there's no BGP running between anything else. It's all static routes. So if you take a transit gateway and set it up in one region, set up a second transit gateway somewhere else for another set of, of hubs, the interaction between those two transit gateways is based on static routing. And it's highly limited. I think there's, I think you can get 200 routes or something like that. Of course, you know, you can go ask and they'll give you some upgrades and let you do some other things, but there's still a lot of limitations in there so the bringing the third parties in brings in in your traditional control plane for like bgp and stuff so that you can manage inter-regional or inner inner hub communications or on-prem to the hub all those pieces become very much normalized at that point as far as the control plane you don't you're not really having to figure out anything special you just configure bgp like you would normally it main mainly has all the main Features have been added to it. They're very even the third parties are pretty light on what they have, but they can definitely do the routing. They definitely do have uh, community strings and everything that you can use to help control what, what you do with your with the route routing entries that, that show up and you work through those pieces. It, so it feels like the BGP implementation. You can't actually build a a what you would do in a, in a normal network you can't build a full bgp domain you're just using it as a protocol to exchange routes between two endpoints and that's where it begins and that's where it ends you've got these little islands of bgp yes we, i don't want to say it's pointless it's almost pointless though it's uh, pointless <laughs> is an exaggeration but it's kind of like if i can't use policy and so on to you know bleed routes where i want and hide routes and you know set preferences and stuff like that all the power's gone 
to be fair to the cloud native side of it, it's just that you would have to, at this point, sort of say like AWS, at this point, you would have to build your own automation to manage all that routing, all the static routing. So you definitely have the ability and definitely could see that there was something failed somewhere and you could write a script or a Lambda that might go change the static routes for you and move things around. So it's, it's just that they, they haven't flushed that out for you. You can build your own or you can buy a third party that's basically well, doing the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Effectively, you'd be, if you rolled your own, you'd be writing your own routing protocol, essentially. I mean, you're not writing mm-hmm. a routing protocol as such. You're writing, you know, something conditional. But at the end of the day, you're writing code that is populating forwarding tables in, yes. with the ultimate means of static crowds. But that that's really what you're doing. That's... Right. <laughs> Oh, okay. Let's just, let's move the conversation along, Chris, to multi-cloud uh, in a little more detail. In, sure. We've been talking about that, uh, that, that multi-cloud networking is complex because the different cloud providers are playing by different rules and different set of uh, scope and criteria for what you can do with networking there. Well, okay. Why do I need to actually stitch multi-cloud together into one big unified network fabric anyway. And I know you had some specific use cases. We've chatted with you offline about this because uh, I could argue, wow, I probably don't actually need that. Maybe everybody needs to talk to on-prem, but do I need this big network fabric where all the multi-cloud can talk to one another? Maybe I don't, but or maybe I do, Chris, right? <laughs> sure, sure. So from that perspective, we actually did go down the path of saying, okay, for for the most part, we would like to see things done at the application layer and went off and delved into uh, to API gateways and figured to try to try to do as much as possible without really any network. So say application living in the one VPC, um, it just, it'll have its listeners for the API gateway with on maybe it was typically just over SSH or SSL, just like you would expect for any other user-based application. So you get these pieces where the developers try to tie everything together without actually having network connectivity from a, not sure how to say that from the, they don't have any private connectivity. They just have the public internet access through the cloud. And, and the gateways there basically as a proxy for these API calls. Yes. Yep. So, as, so long as, the, as long as the yeah. gateway can get to the endpoints it needs, then all mm-hmm. you need to worry about is talking to the gateway, which in theory would simplify networking, but it sounds like you're leading up to, or maybe it doesn't. Well, it it does for anything that you've developed fully in that direction. It's the the stop gaps and then the on-prem that you have resources that you don't want to ever have any kind of public exposure, even if it is highly constrained, you know, have, must have the same certificates on each end to off against and stuff like that. You you may not still not may not be in the situation where you can do that. So you what we found is having to go ahead and stitch together all the clouds and stitch together the, the uh, in, within a single cloud between VPCs and, and between clouds uh, became necessary for that backside connectivity for things that weren't ready to be exposed through API gateway. Mm. So to speed up development. So maybe in a long, the long view, maybe you can eliminate even more of the network functions underneath and just have application connectivity through SSL. But um, getting there is there's there's you got to build the road first. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think that was the early vision of AWS was that everything was just going to be brokered through these public available endpoints. Mm -hmm. So if you look at the very early days of AWS, they didn't really have a networking construct. 
they had a smattering of services and you would link those services together by just using the endpoint that was generated when you added a service. It would say, okay, here's your unique endpoint. Go send all the traffic there to, you know, use our service. And then eventually people were like, but hey, (laughs) I want to do a little bit more than that. Uh, I don't want to do everything through this public endpoint. I would rather use, uh, you know, VPC or some sort of networking construct. And so that's why they eventually created it. And they're actually retiring the the older version of their networking. I, I read that recently. I was like, wow, that's been around for, I mean, in cloud years, like uh, a thousand years. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I had multiplier on everything. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, the, like I said, that it, it was the tack that we were trying to make. Uh, and then you run into too many issues. So you wind up going ahead and, and creating your, your, your cloud network underneath to make sure VPCs communicate. Um, it's also, I guess, becomes a, from a security standpoint, bringing in the security folks into, into everything. If it's just, just all of the app tier, um, it's harder for them to have be plugged into that. Uh, when there are some things going to be exposed, it's like, okay, we've kind of signed off. You got your API gateway stood up. We've signed off on that, but it becomes much more, much deeper for them to go in and figure out what all's, allowed through the gateway what you know, what resources need to have extra attention um what api calls maybe you're more specific more need more uh, you know like a application firewall well application firewall sitting there looking at those details but it also adds another tier there where if it's just a network you can insert those devices at a different different layer and have it uh, part of the path for all traffic and not not trying to figure out what this crazy spider web that's been built for the api gateway <laughs> Right. We pause this day two cloud podcast for an important message from one of our sponsors. Cloud is hard. Predicting cloud costs is even harder. What you need is a friend to help out. What you need is Zesty. Zesty uses AI to proactively adapt cloud resources to real-time application needs without human intervention. Now, I know. I I know. AI is a term that gets thrown around a lot. There's a lot of hype and a lot of disillusionment. And that is because vendors try to get AI to do everything instead of the thing that AI is actually good at. And that thing is monitoring and optimizing repetitive and identifiable events. Guess what cloud cost optimization is? A problem of monitoring and optimizing repetitive and identifiable events. Zesty is using real deal AI in the way it was intended. Zesty's technology leverages AI analysis and autonomous actions based on real time cloud data streams to automatically purchase and sell AWS commitments. Or in much plainer English, Zesty looks at the real time data from your cloud resources and then makes smart purchasing decisions to save you money and you don't have to do anything. There's probably some alarm bells going off in your head. You just handed Zesty an unlimited credit card and permission to use it. That's scary. Fortunately, Zesty offers a buyback guarantee for any over-provisioned commitment. You're not going to get stuck with a pile of reserved instances you don't need due to a glitch in the matrix. That's because Zesty makes money when you save money. That's right. Their fee is based on the savings they provided to you. If you're not saving money, Zesty isn't making money. That's what we call friends aligned 
interests. The result is an average savings of 50% on EC2 and a mere two minutes to onboard your account. If you'd like a friend who saves you time and money, go to zesty.co and book a demo. That's zesty.co to book a demo and put your cloud cost optimization on autopilot. Now back to the episode. So if I'm thinking about the topology, would you only use API gateways for public facing endpoints or do you also use them internally between different business units uh, so that they can talk to each other without connecting their networks together? I don't know if we want to bring up a specific vendor or whatever, but say in the case of MuleSoft, right, they have lots of different implementation options. Mm. They have gateways that are expected to be public, gateways that are that you're setting up private, and then ways of of creating interlinks between public and private uh, pieces in that. I mean, I mean like MuleSoft is just a, just a SaaS application running in AWS. So underneath, it still has the same network connectivity and stuff in there. And you can privately connect to, to that VPC that gets, gets spun up on your, on your behalf, right? So you purchase something from them. So with the specific for that vendor, they've, they've created different entry points um, that you can use. So there's public entry points for anybody to make use of an API. There's private entry points where you've got shared certificates. So you can't talk to that, to that gateway unless you actually have the right certificate installed on the, on each end. Um, and then you have truly internal where you've actually got instances that are sitting and networked with, with within the within the MuleSoft VPC gets networked into the corporate backbone with whatever your back backhaul mm. is for your network. So depending on what you're trying to achieve, and, and then there's even ways of doing calls between public and private in there uh, that allow the that MuleSoft manages and has the adds the layers of security for you to off and at a application layer, the certificate layer, the network source IP layer, there's hmm. stacks of different ways you can sort all that stuff out. But So right. how, how do we cover that for the in here? Oh, geez, I don't know. I, one thing that's intrigued me is the idea of having a private API that doesn't have all the authentication and the additional layers on there. And may, may, some of the commands may even be different. And then the API gateway can act as that translation layer and authentication layer for... Yes public access is that something one of the things that you're implementing today yes yes so both both for um for SaaS application integration so that's used heavily in that that area i mean i mean i'm speaking for on behalf of the developers i guess at that point <laughs> i don't have any detailed knowledge about it but i know the, the some of the design patterns the different structures so it's integration with salesforce so that you so that salesforce has access to our internal uh, ERP system, stuff like that it's, it's done through those gateways. Like I said the different layers of security, the different offerings, the way that you can go about that is there's a significant number of, of ways to secure that communication. Yeah, you, you tick those off pretty quickly. If we could go back to a couple of those. So the API gateway, uh, starting with the authentication, can you just plug it into any identity provider out there? Is that or are there specific ones that you sort of prefer or that work better? Wow, there's it has so many options in that area. I, I think you could almost say you can plug it into any identity provider that you want. We we kind of stack those those things to a certain point, right? So it's bound to a specific certificate. So two nodes, the gateway can only speak between two nodes that have the same certificate. So you can't okay. even establish the session, right? Right. Even as an application, then at the application layer, you may be be 
the token that you're using, or it may be a user ID and password, or those pieces are all embedded in there. Maybe that's all that's all machine to machine, and then you add a actual end user or something. So you may be passing their credentials. So it's there's a lot of a lot of layers to that that I definitely can't speak to in very much detail, but they're, they're definitely in right. there. <laughs> okay, so that, I mean that's just the identity portion is sort of trying to prove who you are. Does the API gateway handle any of the sort of authorization, like what you're able to do, or does it rely on the backend applications to to tell it all that? I think you'd you can you can use a little bit of both, right? So it may be the query when it makes a query, maybe it has the authority to to see a lot more data than what it's going to present mm. because of you know it's sitting in the middle of it, uh, or it may be true, truly passed all the way through where the the original application may be the one that's has the permission set which you can see so that's that's probably one of the areas the developers have a lot of a lot of headache trying to figure out all the you know, like how much do i expose like if the process or the this token has the ability to see x but the actual person making the call request may only be able to see y so Right, right. You could have some sort of DLP thing running on that API gateway that's going, whoop, that's data that can't go out. Got to mm-hmm. scoop that right out <laughs> or just deny the request. Um, now, you're setting up these API gateways. Obviously, they're in the context of this larger cloud network. So let's talk a little bit about like the placement and sizing and, and those sort of aspects of where you're going to put these API gateways uh, <laughs> just to make sure that you... <laughs> They, they keep working if one goes down. Sure, sure. Uh, so, I mean, like I said, a lot of things are forced with uh, redundancy. So you wind up with your dual A's, at least dual AZs in there. Mm-hmm. And the gateways wind up, you need to have them on both, uh, in both split across different AZs. Are, um, are the, is there any state maintenance you have to have between the API gateways? Or do they just function as independent boxes? effectively proxying one specific call and that's all we care about oh that's probably the most simplistic layout i guess when you think of it as a box doing a a single task um but it gets definitely where you i guess you could say there's not even necessarily uh an api gateway being an instance may not even be that it might be just that your web server has has is configured with a certain branch or, or offset, you know, a certain um, path that is only expected to be hit by a third-party machine-to-machine request. So it's not necessarily even that it's special for the gateway hmm. on the on the application side. It might just be that it's something that's implemented in the in that web server, um, and the, the like. Say, Millsoft is reaching in and making is accessing that data and formatting it structuring it different to, for to expose it to a different API call somewhere else that some other applications making request of. Okay. The point being, it's too, too shallow to think of it as merely a proxy that yes. that gateway can do data handling manipulation. I got the API call back. Now it's sitting on me in the gateway and I've got instructions to reform it out like this and then give it back to whoever the original requester was. Absolutely. So yeah, it's, it could be it could be something as simple as a specific call, and it, that's all it does. Or it may be much more complicated. And mixing data sets, I mean, it, the whole idea is that it's gatewaying into all kinds of stuff. So maybe you read some data from a flat file somewhere. Maybe you're reading some data out of a SQL database somewhere. Maybe it's in Postgres or something. There's just no telling what your where your data sources are. 
and all the links. It's it's reaching in. It's designed to reach into a little bit of everything, right? That's the whole the whole purpose of it. <laughs> so you're making an API call to the gateway. The gateway is making a SQL query to some SQL database, bringing that data set back, normalizing it, and giving you back JSON, maybe. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, you've got you've, you've got <laughs> so, a lot going on in there. So and, going and back the, to the state thing, then it may not be about requests that are coming through, but certainly policy and how translations are being done, all of that, you're going to want to have mirrored across however many API gateways you have there. Uh, presumably yes. they'd all be consistent. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Definitely. But do we need to do something like, like if you've got an old school load balancer pair, you would have state maintenance so that if there's a, a failure in the primary unit, you fail over to the secondary um, you've got state maintenance in a in an old school active passive. Do we have any of that kind of stuff to worry about? Uh, um, so the API is a is a SaaS application that all those pieces are are contained within the SaaS application itself. They're they are using the load balancers. Actually, you have private and public load balancers that you use. That's that's really where the certificates and stuff get installed, not in mm-hmm. the actual gateway itself, right? So mm-hmm. they they've got that front ending. it in the in the SAS app, so it's like like MuleSoft. <laughs> so you said SAS before, and that didn't really hit me. You're not running a MuleSoft instance in EC2 and AWS or something. You're no. actually you've got MuleSoft SAS that you're that you're doing all of this yes. too. Yeah. So you go to their <sighs> you go you go dig into into their console, which is then making calls into to the AWS APIs to build your environment for you. Okay, you just made this whole networking thing that much more complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it kind of is like, um, to me, from a network perspective, it was just another SaaS application. So a lot of, lots of the SaaS applications, right, are just uh, over the internet, over, over SSL. It's all the interaction you have. Some of them you have private connectivity into, and you have to extend IPsec tunnels into the, into the SaaS applications environment. Or uh, we don't have any, but I'm assuming it also you had enough traffic and stuff you would build actually a physical network into a SaaS provider right so we don't have to do it with sales salesforce or anybody but you still have lots of interactions that need to take place some of them are on the need to be in back to internal systems that are private so you wind up with with some kind of private ne- network connectivity into your SaaS provider so in this case mulesoft is just another SaaS to us and uh most of the time it was the thought was it would be over the internet connectivity but then you get into the stuff where you have where you need on-prem connectivity for the MuleSoft gateway or gateways and you wind up having to extend your private network into the MuleSoft instance is that what you've ended up having to do yes yeah so we've got both (laughs) yet you got MuleSoft with got MuleSoft sitting there with connectivity you know over ssl to lots and lots of things and then you go, oh, what? I need to also reach into the something on-prem, or I need to reach into something that's in a VPC somewhere. So you have all the backhaul needed to the to the MuleSoft instance for private connectivity. <laughs> okay, okay. So now we go. Now we go back to the API or the the, the Ned's placement question that he asked earlier. Then, um, do how do you decide where to backhaul what? Too? Do you bring it all like hub spoke back to on-prem and then relay it to uh, some whatever part of the multi-cloud needs that access? Or do you have a bunch of direct connects into from MuleSoft SaaS into each of your multi-cloud presences? 
like from the other podcast there, uh, we use Aviatrix. So Aviatrix, we've built it out and created hubs in different regions. And those hubs are used to extend to, to third parties also. So you have private connections into NI-owned VPCs and then connections into third-party instances like MuleSoft or and Salesforce and stuff. So that it brings the IPsec session in, terminates it in into the Aviatrix node in the cloud some in in any given region. And then you have the, the full transport and where all the importance of the control plane stuff becomes very useful to control how routing is stitched together. Do you go all the way to a colo before you go between two clouds? Do you go direct between clouds? In, in the rare case of something's wrong, do you hop between two clouds to get to on-prem? <laughs> this does go back to the sponsored Aviatrix show that we recorded yeah. with that where you were talking about a bunch of your use cases and stuff. But right, okay, so now you've ended up with this to handle this uh, <laughs> way over-the-top complex environment. You've got Aviatrix as your baseline that allows you to bring it all in and do uh, a full-featured routing policy. So you've just, you basically said, I am dismissing all of you cloud-native stuff. I'm not doing that. I'm going to do Aviatrix, which lets me do grown-up networking effectively. <laughs> right. It, it gives me, you know, it's the, it's the normalizer. It lets me take, step across clouds, have the same expected feature sets um, and the same tools to control the routing and single place to do automation against the right to manage your uh well as, as close to single as you can with third parties to manage your ipsec sessions and stuff to build connectivity between third-party SaaS applications brother okay security <laughs> then i want to add that layer to this do, how are you do it feels to me like in, in this example the api gateway the mulesoft stuff Getting access to that is a big deal. If I had access to that, I could do bad things or at least attempt to. And I'm mm -hmm. assuming you're filtering access to even get to MuleSoft. Well, I guess that's the question. Are you doing it like that? Like like traditional maybe firewall filtering or just simple access uh, packet level filtering? Or are you doing things more at the MuleSoft level to control access to that gateway? Sure. So we've, we've I guess like you would expect, you would, you, it's all in, it's in, you know, security in depth. So there's tools, controls that are done within the MuleSoft itself. They have lots of controls in there, usually more around um, uh, certificates. So issuing a certificate that's only used between two two endpoints, you know, stuff like that to to close down those those paths for for only the known application can can do the work. Um, but then you know, for between cloud and on-prem, there's your your uh, next-gen firewalls sitting there and your application-aware firewalls being able to look at, at the actual calls and make sure that they're structured and making appropriate calls, not just any old call. So there's definitely layers of security going on there from the simple things of the source IP has to match mm. uh, all the way down to uh, deep uh, API call uh, or deep application yeah. level yeah, you, analysis. Yeah. You're making an API call you shouldn't be making. You're asking a right. question that you don't have the right to ask, so we're gonna we're gonna clobber you. And that's after mm -hmm. all the regular authentication stuff and so on happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, so troubleshooting must be, be layers. A, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, troubleshooting all those layers, it must be an absolute joy. <laughs> um, actually, it's it's not been terrible there since the stuff is structured so much for an API gateway. It's probably a lot easier than a lot of a lot of things you think of and just general applications and 
don't know what someone's done, what they're doing, it's, since it's an API gateway, it's the structures are much easier to, to maybe just much easier to keep in your head because you only have to think of that one API call. <laughs> well, yeah, you said structure <laughs> is the magic word because I've yeah. done my share of web application firewall work, which is always a bit of a disaster. Mm -hmm. uh, devs never know what we're supposed to allow into certain forms and then they change stuff and don't tell you when the WAF breaks things and it, yep. yeah, never fun. Yep. But. And then from a network perspective, it's like we help stitch those kind of appliances in there, but we're not operating those either. So right. that's the security team's fun. So they, I'm sure they would have a different answer. <laughs> fun. You say, I hear the air quotes. <laughs> exactly. I'm sure they have a little different answer on what the troubleshooting looks like. <laughs> Yeah, I got to imagine from just a logging and monitoring perspective, that's that's a huge challenge. It's hard enough to get your hands around just logging for a particular cloud and their native services and then layer on those third party services and then another cloud. Are you using some sort of logging and monitoring tool that spans this whole architecture or is it a combination of the native tools in each cloud and then something else? Uh, so obviously the native tools get used heavily and depending on what area of the company you're in for, for application developer or whatever they have, we have uh, Logstash, uh, Elasticsearch set up to do application level logging. So they have all their side of it where they can write their error traps and send it to a, to a known log server. And then you, you got your cloud native stuff, your net, your flow records and all these pieces in there. And the security team has all their stuff that uh, it is probably from each area there. There's probably something common that they would put together, but there's definitely um, overall, there's multiple different things you'd have to look through, but it's usually by, by the area of, that's of expertise, right? So the application developer has their stuff. It is a log stash, but it's not probably part of data that we would, everyone would necessarily want to dig into. The security mm -hmm. team has their stuff like that. We have the Aviatrix tool, which is spewing NetFlow, which winds up back in, in Logstash also. So you can kind of see what's going on. So from each area, they have their, their central piece, but you still do have to get into the native tools here and there too. So can't, we haven't gotten, we're definitely not far enough down the path to have said, yeah, we've got a single place that we can do full logging and, and visualize everything by no means. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think anyone will ever get to that place, right? With any right. complicated environment, there's no way to just have one tool and one thing to rule it all. But it sounds like something like Logstash is, is good at collecting everything. And with all the native sources you've got in the cloud, something like the Aviatrix product, that is able to collect logs from all these different native things and put them into one consistent place. Is that kind of the, one of the things that it's doing for you? It's one of the things it gives, you know, it's, it's helping normalize a bunch of stuff and, mm. and expose it through one, one screen, um, either in the copilot side of it, which is an analysis tool or as, as it, as we're consolidating and logging it to log stash. So kind of got two ways of viewing it. One that's one that's even more massaged getting it down to Logstash and more specific to maybe what we're specifically looking for. And then the native tools just to, when you have to just start digging around going, I'm not, not, not picking up anything of interest. You may start <laughs> digging in, digging into the native tools or the, or the third party tools in a little more depth. Well, Chris, if you could sum up this conversation from a standpoint of lessons learned, and I, and I, here's the context I'm asking, asking this. You started out in the beginning saying, we're going to go cloud native and do all the things. And then you didn't. 
Um, can you give some advice to some people that are facing this? They're realizing their environment's going to be multi-cloud. Would you give them some tips of things to, uh, steps to not waste their time with, but move in and consider this other architecture because Chris has been there and he knows. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a great learning experience to go dig into the each cloud's uh, native offerings. And I wouldn't say not to at least keep your finger on what's going on there because they are very big entities. They can turn out features very fast compared to probably any of the third parties. So they're not, we, we never have said that, oh, we know we're not ever going to use cloud native. We've kind of try to keep up a little bit and pay attention. Um, but if you just need to get things online uh, quickly and, and you don't have any, if you don't really have a decent control of what cloud you might be in, then I'd definitely go to the third party market and look at the different offerings out there um, that uh, to help you stitch and manage the pieces together. Otherwise, you're really going to have a, you're really going to be chasing a lot trying to figure out some of these pieces in it. And besides, you know, traditional firewalls and like, Cisco CSR routers and, and SD-WAN platforms to stitch cloud to cloud, the native functions, I don't know how you would actually achieve it. There's chicken before the egg mm. problem. You usually have to know the destination, mm. but you can't to start. So you, if you, you can't really build an IPsec tunnel between two clouds because both ends have a, what's the destination? Well, it doesn't tell you the destination until you start the process, right? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Well, Chris Oliver, thank you for joining us on Day Two Cloud today. Do do you are you a social person? Are you out on the internet where people can follow you or ask you questions? Um, I'm as far as a LinkedIn would probably be the best place at this point, just to send stuff to. I I haven't historically followed it, but I've picked up lately, sort of having to pay a lot more attention to it. <laughs> yeah, LinkedIn seems to have a lot of interesting conversations going on that. Um, uh, more consistently work focused than than Twitter, and I've seen a bunch of good threads there on the on LinkedIn actually. Whereas Twitter is, you know, it's Twitter. So all right, <laughs> all LinkedIn, over the place, right? Chris, yeah, LinkedIn, and uh, and and thank you for that, and thank you for spending time with us on Day Two Cloud today, Chris. Uh, really, very much appreciated. And uh, thanks to you out there that are listening, virtual high fives for making it all the way to the end of this. Hopefully, we got your brain spinning and thinking about things in multi cloud and Thoughts if you have a specific application that uh, is driving you to multi-cloud or that you have to supply um, networking to for the multi-cloud, like Chris's example of MuleSoft SaaS and the API gateway he had to feed to a whole bunch of different environments. If you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit Ned or I up on Twitter via at Day2CloudShow. Ned and I watch that. You can fill out the form on Ned's fancy website if you're not a Twitter human. Ned's fancy website is nedinthecloud.com. Packet Pusher says a weekly newsletter, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet, plus our own feature articles and commentary. It's free. doesn't suck. It's private. We don't sell any of your information to anybody. You can get the next issue at packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 